Greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Before we start the podcast today, I do want to make an announcement that my new book, 40 Days in Philippians, Finding Joy in Jesus, is now available to order through G3 Ministries. You can find the link in the show notes. You can also get the Kindle version on Amazon. I am so thankful for the opportunity to be able to have written this book and for G3 Ministries and publishing it. It's basically a verse-by-verse, more in-depth study of the book of Philippians. And there's a daily devotional that goes each day for 40 days. Um, A lot of devotionals have little tidbits of inspirational thoughts and more stories and not a lot of scripture. And so I wanted to write a devotional that would be more in-depth getting into the scriptures that would give a little bit more solid theology and meat than some of your other devotionals that you find out there. And so I'd encourage you to go check out 40 Days in Philippians, Finding Joy in Jesus. The podcast today is going to be directed primarily to my Southern Baptist brothers and sisters and the entire issue related to women in ministry, women preachers, the ordination of women, and all of these issues related to complementarian theology and egalitarian theology. This has been an issue that's been bubbling to the surface over the past few years. Two years ago at the Colorado Baptist Convention, I submitted and I jointly submitted this with another group of pastors, a resolution that basically called for only men serving as pastors. And we got to the convention and the resolutions committee basically gutted our resolution and reworded it to only apply to senior pastors or lead pastors. And so we had to stand up in the middle of the convention and make changes. And they basically uh, modified our original resolution. And, And eventually we got the wording back to the way it was originally and it did pass, but it only passed about 65% to 35%. And so even within our own state convention of Colorado Baptists, there have been uh, those that are pushing for more of an egalitarian stance related to women in ministry. And I've been told by others that um, basically say, yeah, we agree with you, Sean. We are complementarian, but it's okay to let women preach from time to time on Sunday morning. And um, really, it's a secondary issue. And since we're in a more progressive state like Colorado, and these pastors are in places like Metro Denver and Boulder and Fort Collins and places like that, we really need to kind of put this as a secondary issue or we're not going to be able to reach the culture, this progressive uh, blue state culture here in Colorado. So I'm, I'm hearing that. And then recently in our Colorado Baptist newspaper, um, a, a person that I know that I'm familiar with and have a good relationship, I'm not going to mention her name, but she wrote an article basically asking questions related to this topic. And she came out and said, I'm a complementarian, 
But the questions that she asked were basically coming from an egalitarian framework. And a lot of the questions that the egalitarian, more evangelical feminists ask related to women in ministry. And she did not give answers to the questions that she asked. So that led me to believe, well, what does she believe? I don't like when people ask questions and then don't answer them. That's a lot of what the progressive Christianity movement does. They like to ask a lot of questions and then not answer them and and be very like, oh, we're just asking questions. Well, by not answering the questions you're asking, it leads me as the reader to make an assumption, whether true or not, that you actually believe the, the question that you're answering to be in the affirmative, that you actually agree with the question that you're asking. And so I contacted her privately and we had some email correspondence and she clarified some things, which was very, very helpful for me to understand where she's coming from. So we also think about the whole issue related to Saddleback Church. Uh, Rick Warren's church was basically disfellowshipped by the Credentials Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention for ordaining three women. It goes against the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. There were some other churches that were disfellowshipped as well. And so Rick Warren has made it very public that he felt like that was a wrong move and that he's going to appeal that decision in New Orleans in a few months in June at the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. In addition, Mike Law, who is a pastor out of Virginia, He has submitted an amendment to the Constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention to allow for only males in all all pastoral positions, not just senior pastor, which is kind of the the, the wording that they use. is just the senior pastor has to be a male, but other pastoral positions can be female. He has written an amendment to that that over 2,000 pastors and leaders have signed, of which I am a a signer of that, and, and that was brought before the credential committee and the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention and, and they're supposedly supposed to allow that to be addressed at the annual meeting. So you've got things going on in my own state convention of Colorado. You have Mike Law's amendment that's gained national um, attention through 2,000 pastors signing on to it and he found just through his own research about 100 and 50 plus churches that are SBC that have women pastors. And then you have this whole issue of Rick Warren coming um, last year in Anaheim. I was actually in the room pretty close to where he was standing, where he made his appeal there, given six minutes to basically talk about um, how great he was. And so there's a lot of things that are facing Southern Baptist in particular at our annual meeting. You may listen to this podcast and think, well, I'm not a Southern Baptist, so this really doesn't matter. And I would challenge your thinking on that. You may not be Southern Baptist, but what the Southern Baptist Convention decides, articulates, promotes, is a bellwether for evangelicalism in America. The Southern Baptist Convention of Churches is the largest Protestant evangelical denomination. So what Southern Baptists decide to do is very influential in how the majority of evangelical churches and movements in America are going to respond. And so we are at this point in time still a Southern Baptist church, although we have had many discussions as elders and as a congregation as far as what that looks like and how we participate and how we move forward. And we're still praying and navigating that and we're, we're waiting to see what happens in New Orleans. And so what I'd like to do in this podcast is I'd like to just basically 
clear up some confusion and address some of the issues related to the arguments that egalitarian or what we would call evangelical feminists put forward to defend their view that women can preach or women can be pastors. Now, I use the word evangelical feminist because these are those who believe in the scriptures. They would be within the bounds of conservative evangelicalism. We're not talking about mainstream liberal denominations. We're talking about those within our tribe, those that would consider themselves Bible-believing conservative evangelicals, but they have basically moved uh, in a progressive direction in the area of women in ministry. And so let's just ask the question, what should the theology, practices, and conduct look like in a local church that holds to the lordship of Christ and the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, I'm preaching through 1 Timothy right now, and in 1 Timothy, that whole letter is written to instruct believers of how the church, the local church, should be ordered, especially according to God's plan for spiritual leadership. And and the key thesis or passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy that lays this forth is 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Okay, the church is the pillar and buttress of truth, and Paul is writing to Timothy in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, how the church should behave. And so, As the foundation of God's truth, how should the church function, especially, specifically for this podcast, in the area of women in leadership? Now, before I answer this question, I just want to express my sincere gratitude to all the women who have guided, taught, and helped me grow spiritually in my life. I am thankful for my mother, who was very instrumental in leading me to the Lord and raising me, my grandmothers, two godly women who were believers, uh, my female Sunday school teachers as children that, that, that helped me understand the gospel. There's gracious women in my church family, and most of all, my wonderful wife. My wife, Dawn, has blessed me tremendously with her scriptural insight, with her tender heart, with her wise discernment. In addition, Emmanuel Baptist Church, The church that I have pastored for the past 18 years would not function without faithful women. My two ministry assistants ensure that our congregation doesn't blow up. Um, I'm blessed to have been um, a powerful encouragement of these women to me over the years. Um, I'm thankful for our elders and deacons' wives, the leaders of our women's ministry and Bible studies, and, and the many extraordinary ladies of all ages, and the widows, especially in our church, that have supported me with prayer. So in other words, the women in my life and church are awesome ladies. And God has been so merciful to me through their love, influence, and encouragement. So I'm thankful. Our church and churches would not function without women in specific areas of serving and leadership. And so let me say from the beginning, this is not to knock on women and say that women are second-class citizens or that women have no value or that women can't function in leadership positions in the church. Far from that. What we're saying is that the Bible limits the role of a pastor slash elder and that of one who preaches or teaches men to that of being a male only. 
So is the issue of women in ministry murky or is it crystal clear? And so many faithful Southern Baptists are currently wrestling with this topic. And you ask the question, why is this question important for cooperation of Southern Baptists? Is this a tertiary issue? Uh, What's at stake at the Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans this June? Will, Will our convention move quickly toward an egalitarian theology or will it remain solidly complementarian? That's a huge question. Will the convention split? What's going to happen? Now, I'm preaching through 1 Timothy, and eventually in a few weeks we're going to get to this passage of Scripture, but I want to do this now just in a timely manner as we're approaching the Southern Baptist Convention this June just so my podcast listeners, and you can share this with others, just kind of know the lay of the land and and what's actually happening with this topic. And so the controversial passage on the role of women in the local church is 1 Timothy 2, 11-12. And Paul writes, Let a woman learn quietly... With all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, at this point for this podcast, my intention is not to give an exegesis of this passage. I'll, I'll do that when we get to my sermon. Um, but many fine scholars who are smarter than, than I have have given in-depth treatments. And, I, and two great commentaries on the book of First Timothy, which I'm using right now, are the word biblical commentary on the pastoral epistles by William Mounts. Um, it's thoroughly complementarian. And the New International Greek Testament commentary on the pastoral epistles by George Knight. That also is a very solid commentary that's thoroughly complementarian. Um, Andreas Kostenberger has edited a helpful book called Women in the Church that deals with many of these exegetical issues. So if you want to uh, read those books or consult those books, those are the experts. But I unashamedly affirm a historic complementarian theology on the roles of men and women in the church. And what concerns me is that in our conservative convention of churches, both at the local state level of Colorado Baptist and the national level of Southern Baptist at large, I see many advocating, promoting, or asking questions from an evangelical feminist, otherwise known as egalitarian viewpoint. So let's just address or interact with with these issues. What primary arguments do evangelical feminists or i.e. egalitarians put forth from their understanding of Scripture? Now, I don't have time to articulate every opinion or viewpoint, but I'm going to summarize five key positions or five key arguments that they are using to espouse or defend or promote this view. And these are in no particular order, But let's just address these five issues. So here's argument number one. In 1 Timothy, Paul addressed a cultural historical issue specific to that period. In other words, what they say is the command was not binding on all churches at all times and places. It was a cultural issue. Whether it was an issue with the Ephesian culture and the women in Ephesus, it was specific to Paul's day and it doesn't have contemporary applications for now. So what does it mean when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man? Is Paul speaking about his just opinion, or is he speaking on God's authority as an apostle? I think it's the fact that it is inspired scripture, so it's God's ultimate authority. Now, some have tried to explain the word permit 
by saying it was Paul's personal opinion. This is Paul's opinion. It's not binding as an instruction. It, it could be followed or not. Um, others would say, based upon the Greek grammar, because it's in the present tense, I, I'm currently permitting present tense that Paul was not only permitting it at that specific point in time, that, that Paul was only um, not permitting it at that specific point in time in Ephesus, but did not intend to have it as a universal or binding principle for all time. Now, that is a weak argument because if you're just going to use the present tense of a verb that Paul uses, and you can make that application for any present tense verb that Paul uses and say, well, when Paul uses a present tense verb, it was only specific for that time. That becomes a slippery slope. So I find both these interpretations very weak. Uh, first, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an apostle, and he's speaking for God in his apostolic office he's not just giving a specific opinion but a he's giving a binding rule but second paul's command is for all churches everywhere if you think about the church in corinth paul writes this in first corinthians 14 33 through 35 for god is not a god of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now notice what Paul says here. He says this command applies to all the churches. Not just in Corinth, not just in Ephesus. So Paul is not prohibiting women from speaking in other places outside the church or that she cannot serve in the secular workforce, and said the command is restricted to life within the church. In other words, this is a timeless command that means that women should not be allowed to teach men or preach from the pulpit in the gathered worship service or when the church assembles. Now here's the major problem with claiming that this prohibition against women teaching was a cultural issue of Paul's day and not applicable to the modern church. Here's the problem. That is the same argument that the liberal church used to affirm homosexuality and the ordination of gays and lesbians and now even transgender. If you go back in history to the 1950s through the 1970s, the mainline Protestant denominations approved the ordination of women using those same arguments. And today, they have moved far beyond women clergy to now openly ordaining homosexuals and performing same-sex weddings. So those who affirm homosexuality now use the hermeneutical arguments used by evangelical feminists to prove their defense of women pastors or women preaching. So recent history has shown that when those who limit Paul's command for women not to teach or to have authority over men to just that historical context of Ephesus back in the day, it becomes a slippery slope that moves very quickly into affirming homosexuality. You have seen that historically over the past 50 years. All right, let's talk about argument number two that you often hear. Here's argument two. They would say there are rare occasions, there are some anomalies, when a woman can preach on the Lord's Day to the entire congregation, and with this caveat, as long as she has the elder's approval or the elder's permission or the elder's covering, as long as the elders give her permission and she's under the authority of the elders, she can sometimes do that. But let's just ask some logical and theological questions. If the Bible clearly prohibits something, then it should not matter whether or not the elders give permission or authority for a person to commit that sin. 
Likewise, in any other area, we would never think it proper for a pastor or elders to permit another person to commit a clear violation of Scripture. A careful reading of 1 Timothy 2.12 does not say, it does not say this, a woman may not teach unless she's under the authority of the elders or given permission by the pastor. That caveat or that condition is not in the text. It is added in to boost their argument. We would not affirm the right of a pastor to give permission or delegate authority to a church member to, for, for example, quarrel or commit adultery or, or be stingy with their money. <laughs> we don't provide these caveats of elders giving permission in any other area of the Bible. And so it's, it's very curious to me that this passage in Timothy appears to be the one place where we can make a carve out for disobedience to the scriptures as long as quote-unquote the elders give permission for the woman to do so or she comes under the covering or the blessing of the elders. No matter how sincere the elders may be in wanting to empower or recognize the giftings of a woman by allowing her to preach to the entire congregation, they, those elders, would be complicit in leading her to sin. They're not protecting her. They're leading her to sin. They're basically giving her permission to sin. This would not be protecting her, but actually hurting her spiritually by condoning the clear violation of Scripture. Now, some of the arguments that you'll hear from egalitarians is that what Paul is prohibiting here with women teaching or having authority, what Paul's prohibiting, what Paul's not wanting to happen is these women from teaching false doctrine to men. In other words, they'll say things like this. These women can teach men if they use sound doctrine and don't lead the congregation astray into heresy. But let's again, let's read the text carefully. The text does not say, I do not permit a woman to teach false doctrine, but it's okay if she teaches men sound doctrine. It doesn't say that. There's also disagreement over how one interprets the word to have authority. Now, the updated 2011 NIV, New International Version, has softened the translation. Here's what the updated 2011 NIV says. It says, quote, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And what they mean with this new interpretation is a woman can't usurp or take authority away from the man. She can't be insubordinate. In other words, if the leadership gives her authority to teach, she can teach other men. She just can't come in and be insubordinate and take that away from the elders. But if the elders give her permission to do so, then she can, as long as she teaches accurate doctrine and not false doctrine. So Paul's not simply telling women that they can teach and have authority over men as long as they don't do it in an abrasive, domineering way. Instead, this egalitarian understanding of the text conveys more about how a woman should teach men than the prohibition of actually teaching and having authority over men. So basically what the egalitarians are saying is it's more the way in which she teaches men. She can teach men if she's been given permission by the elders and she doesn't usurp or take that authority away or, or come in and, and dominate. And so basically here's, here's the two things. The egalitarians argue that women can teach men if, they give these two caveats, if, number one, they don't teach false doctrine, and number two, they don't, usurp or dominate or try to take the authority away from the elders but they're given permission by the elders now again the text does not explicitly say this paul puts no qualifications or modifiers 
on the two verbs to teach and to have authority. He just basically says that without any caveats or carve-outs or, or modifications. So the two above caveats that the egalitarian Jews, number one, she can teach as long as she doesn't teach false doctrine, and number two, she can have authority as long as she doesn't take that authority, but she's given permission. Those are not in the biblical text. And so a lot of confusion comes in making implications and applications from what the text does not say instead of understanding what it clearly does say. See, here's the fear. I think egalitarians don't want to just read the text at face value and believe what it says. They've got to dance around it and do some hermeneutical gymnastics and add some things in and and put these caveats that Paul does not put in the text because the clear, plain reading of the text is pretty clear. It's not that hard to understand. Now, what's hard for them is to accept it. It's hard to accept that's what Paul said, but it's not hard to understand. All right, let's look at argument number three, and this is more of Rick Warren's argument or Rick Warren's defense. If you go back and listen to him with um, Russell Moore's podcast or even what he said in his teachings. And so here's argument number three. God calls and gifts women to preach in the local church, and we have biblical examples of women doing so. So egalitarians argue that if a woman has a genuine call from God to pastoral ministry or to preach, then we have no right to stand in the way of God's work in her life. And thus, we should allow her to follow this calling. Now here's an assumption that they bring to the table that is not biblical. The assumption in this view is that God does indeed call women to pastoral ministry and to preach. That's the assumption. God just does it. They assume that. Why wouldn't God? If God calls men, he calls women. But God's word is clear that the office and function of a pastor slash elder are reserved only for men. And so as a result, God does not call women to pastoral or eldership or to teach or preach over men. That would be a clear violation of the written scriptures. Now let me bring some clarification to this. What women may perceive as a call to pastoral ministry may actually be a genuine call to some other area of ministry or service in the life of the church, but not to the office and function of a pastor slash elder. And like I said earlier when I was talking about the ladies in my life in Emmanuel Baptist Church, women can serve in many areas. They can hold church leadership. They can use their gifts and talents for God's glory. But what we're saying that the Bible says is the only prohibition is that of serving as an elder and teaching men. And egalitarians will point to such women as Deborah in the Old Testament or Priscilla or the women prophesying on the day of Pentecost um, as examples of gifted preachers and teachers who had authority over men. They'll use biblical examples as opposed to the clear didactic teaching of Paul in the pastoral epistles. So let's talk about Deborah for a moment. There's no doubt that Deborah was a prophetess. She was a judge in Israel. You go back to Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5. Now, The book of Judges is written in the genre of Hebrew narrative, which often simply reports events that happened. It doesn't give prescriptions of how things ought to happen. That's very important when you read Old Testament narratives. The narrator or the author oftentimes just reports what happened without giving a commentary on what should happen. So we cannot use the ministry of Deborah as a didactic instruction on the role of women for a New Testament local church. The pastoral epistles 
not the book of Judges, give us clear instructions on how to order the polity leadership of local churches. And remember, the book of Judges shows Israel at one of its lowest points in history. <laughs> it shouldn't be a template for building a theology on God's plan for the local church. And just a side note, Deborah became a judge because of a vacuum of male leadership. Really, she was an indictment on the weaknesses of Barak and the other men in Israel who should have stepped up and, 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 had, and been courageous leaders. They should have stepped up to the plate. Now, what about Priscilla? Okay, we know that in Acts 18.26, she took Paulus aside and corrected his, thalo- his theology. Apollos was a great and gifted orator, preacher, but he had a few things wrong. And so um, the, the Bible says Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, took her aside. Now, is this an example of a woman teaching or having authority over a man? Let's ask the question. First, Priscilla was never recognized as an apostle or elder in the early church. She was never recognized as an apostle or an elder. Second, Acts never records her preaching to the entire congregation or giving a public discourse. And third, if you read the text, she approached Apollos privately with her husband, present, to correct his theology. Now, it was right and proper for Priscilla to do this in private. But in no way did she publicly preach God's word. For example, if I'm wrong theologically or I say something out of bounds from the pulpit, I, I think that any, any member of my church who's a woman should have the right to come to me privately with her husband and ask for clarification or bring correction, and I should be able to receive that. But it doesn't mean that she should stand up on the Lord's Day and preach in my place because she knows better. That's not what's happening. This episode in Acts should not be used to create a normative practice that gives women permission to preach to men or hold office of eldership. So again, the assumption is that women are called to pastoral ministry and we have examples of women preaching, so therefore we should allow women preachers today. Instead of looking at the clear didactic teachings of instructions on how to order the church from First and Second Timothy and Titus. Okay, this is argument four. And you're seeing this a lot in the recent history of the SBC. Here's argument number four. Complementarian theology automatically leads to patriarchal hierarchies and sexual abuse. Therefore, women must be freed from misogyny in the church that results from complementarian theology of the role of women. Now, let me say unequivocally that any abuse is sinful and egregious and should be handled with the strictest care and urgency. We should never, ever tolerate any abuse in our homes or in our churches. We should deal with it, both with law enforcement, first, with church discipline. We need to take care of the women and children in our lives and in our churches by protecting them. However, the role of men in pastoral leadership acting sinfully does not mean that there is an automatic cause and effect relationship that stems from complementarian theology. There's not an automatic cause and effect. Now, are there genuine abuses of complementarianism in churches where men do act chauvinistically and patriarchal? Absolutely. You probably have seen examples of gross misogyny happening in some churches. But, that, but, but we cannot then claim that complementarian theology automatically 
cause and effect leads to abuse. There could be some misunderstandings and misapplications of complementarian theology that may lead to abuse. And that's a reality. Nevertheless, it is still God's standard for men to be servant leaders in their homes and the church. And so we can't lower the bar or nullify the scripture's clear teaching on the role of men and women in the church as an, a reaction to abuse. And I think that's what's happening. Sadly, the recent abuse issue in the SBC churches has been used, I think, to diminish a complementarian stance. It's been used kind of as a backdoor way to elevate egalitarianism in our denomination. And so let's just say we can, we can walk and chew gum. We can do two things at once. A faithful biblical standard is this. Number one, we can denounce abuse at every level and protect women and children from predators while at the same time, we can hold fast to a complementarian theology that the Bible teaches as well as the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Both of these issues can be held simultaneously. We can address the issues of gross abuse and also hold to what the Bible says. All right, let me give you argument number five. And this is what you, you saw last year with Adam Greenway at the annual convention back when he was the president of Southwestern Seminary. Uh, you see others. I've seen people on Twitter over the past year uh, use this argument. So here's argument number five. This is a tertiary, not even secondary, but tertiary, a third-tier issue within Southern Baptist life, and it shouldn't cause division. This shouldn't prohibit our cooperation. We need to widen the tent for unity in the SBC. Don't let this issue divide. Now, I'll be the first to champion that any local SBC church can affirm whatever doctrinal statement they want to. They can practice whatever they want to practice. They can have women pastors if they want, based upon local autonomy of the church. There's no ecclesiastical structure that can bind the conscience of any church. Uh, the state convention or the annual denomination can't come to a church and tell them what to do. But with that being said, there's a significant difference when the discussion turns to cooperating with dollars and resources to accomplish the Great Commission. You see, each autonomous SBC church voluntarily participates in the cooperative program, its local association, its state convention, and the national SBC. It's a voluntary cooperation. And so as we cooperate, especially with sending students to seminary, in church planting, in missions, in disaster relief, in giving money, as we cooperate, we have to ask the question, well, what actually unites us? Is it theology or the mission? You see, what I'm often hearing these days is, there, is a lot of people are getting it backwards. They're saying, we're united by the mission. Theology comes second. The mission is the Great Commission. That's what we're united by. Theology is secondary. And I say, no, you've got it backwards. If our theology does not drive our mission, we're in big trouble. We've got to be united in theology because if you're not united in theology, then we can go all different directions with the mission. You, you talk to a bunch of Southern Baptists and ask, yeah, we're, we're, we want to fulfill the Great Commission and plant churches and do missions. Great, but how do you do that? What's the theology behind that? Do we allow for a wider tent for maximum effectiveness? How narrowly do we draw the lines? Uh, these are tough questions. 
Now, I would hope that no Southern Baptist would deny the, the foundational truths of the, of the faith. They would hold to the, what we call the dogma, the trinity, the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, uh, the literal resurrection, salvation by grace alone, the final judgment, the reality of heaven and hell. Uh, th- those are fundamentals that we should agree upon. But there are some significant disagreements on secondary issues. Nevertheless, these secondary issues are what actually bind us as Southern Baptists together in cooperation. And they actually distinguish us from being Presbyterian or Assemblies of God or Methodist or a non-denominational Bible church. For example, baptism by immersion is a secondary issue. We have Presbyterian brothers and sisters that practice paedo-baptism, infant baptism. But we as Baptists baptized by immersion, and that's a secondary issue. It's not an issue of dogma, but it's vitally important in cooperating and planting churches and doing missions that we plant Baptist churches that practice believers' baptism. Eternal security is a secondary issue. My Nazarene or Pentecostal brothers and sisters may believe you can use your free will to walk away from salvation. But it's vitally important for cooperating among Southern Baptists because when you're planning churches and doing missions, you want to have that doctrine of eternal security. So let's ask the question, is women in ministry a secondary issue? Yes, it is. It's not a dogma, but it's vital to our cooperation in planning churches and doing missions. The money that our church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, sends through both the cooperative program and the allocation budget to the SBC We know that it goes to train seminary students. It goes to help plant churches. It goes to send missionaries to unreached people groups. And so the question we've got to ask is, do faithful givers in my church want to send their money in partnership to those who affirm women preaching on the Lord's Day are moving in an egalitarian direction? And the answer is no. My people want to be assured that if we send money along to these various entities, it's being stewarded by those who hold the same convictions, even on secondary matters. Because we're talking resources and money and cooperation. A local church can do what it wants to do. But when you start cooperating with dollars and with seminaries and with church planning and with entities, there's got to be cooperation. There's got to be unity. And some have argued that, well, we should allow women to preach on those rare occasions or that certain anomalies should happen from time to time. Uh, that there may be certain anomalies. There are certain times that we can do this. Well, here's the problem with that, with these certain anomalies or these certain times that are permitted to occur. Uh, they, they bring confusion to the church because what ends up happening is they often become the church's normative practice. So once you open the door an inch for an anomaly, for a, for a one, one-time thing, the doors can be flung wide open very quickly and then it becomes embedded in the church, church's culture, and you, and you can't backtrack from that. You've gone too far. So I would argue that holding to a traditional complementarian theology prov- actually provides more unity in the SBC because it reflects, number one, the clear teaching of Scripture. That's the most important thing to me, the clear teaching of Scripture. But we have a faith statement, the Baptist faith and message, and it does not limit it to just the role of senior pastor. That's what you want to hear people say. When they did the Baptist faith and message and talked about the role of, of, of men being pastors, it was only relegated to senior pastor. Well, the word senior is not in there. And the Bible knows nothing of a senior pastor. There is the word presbyteros, which means elder. There's a word episkopos, which means overseer. And those are synonymous for an elder slash pastor. And there's no such thing as an associate pastor or a children's pastor or a youth pastor or an executive pastor or a worship pastor. 
The Bible knows of no such things. Those are, those are products of our invention within the past 20, 30, 40 years. The, the biblical office is that of a pastor slash elder, not just the senior pastor. And also, the conservative resurgence had some hard-won victories that we need to stand on. Now, I can't speak for other churches or their members, and, and I wouldn't dare make a blanket statement on what most SBC pastors and their churches think on this. I mean, there's way too many, there's supposedly 47,000 churches. I, I can't give my opinion on that. I can only speak for the convictions of myself, my elders, and my local church family. Let me give you an example. I, I lead a small group Bible study in our home with young married couples. Um, and, and, and these aren't a lot of them from Southern Baptist backgrounds. They're just young couples that have come into our church. We're doing Bible study in my home. And um, a few months ago, I, we, didn't t- we weren't talking about this issue at all as far as the SBC. And I didn't really give any lead up. I just asked a simple question. I asked them this. Here's the question I asked. Can you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and allow women to be pastors or to preach to men? I just asked that question without any qualification or lead up. And without hesitation, every single one of them answered, no, no way. And one young woman just said, said, basically said, how can you believe in the Bible when it clearly says that women can't teach men or be pastors? It's a no-brainer. I think we've made this issue more difficult or murkier than it needs to be. And sadly, what's happened is the evangelical church has been heavily influenced over the past 50 years by the egalitarian feminist movement. Historically, the church didn't struggle with this issue. For the first 1,950 years, It's only been in recent history that this egalitarian hermeneutic has taken the church by storm. And unfortunately, this thinking comes more from the culture than it does from the clear teachings of the Bible. So I pray for the messengers in New Orleans this June to unite and make a clear statement on this issue. I pray for clarity, I pray for precision, and I pray for consensus, no matter how it turns out. Because clarity and consensus help us determine if we should continue to fellowship and cooperate or if we in good conscience have to step away. So no matter what happens in Nashville, I'm not Nashville, uh, New Orleans, no matter what happens in New Orleans, I pray for clarity. Because if the majority of the messengers move in an egalitarian direction, that's very clear to us as a church that we need to step away. If the messengers are are very clear that they want to stay complementarian, that helps us to remain. So regardless of what the outcome, I just want there to be clarity and precision and consensus. So whatever the outcome of this vital issue happens at the convention, I pray that we speak the truth in love. I pray that we'll be gentle and respectful when disagreeing. I also pray that those who have clear biblical convictions are allowed to speak at microphones and that the platform does not cut people's mics off or allow people to to not share their view or that they plant certain people at certain places to give them more time than others like what happened to Rick Warren. I pray that there's there's actual order at the convention where there is a true ability for both sides to speak and for there to be a clear vote based upon clear communication and clear understanding. So every concerned Southern Baptist should approach this June with sobriety, prayer, and humility. So if you're going to the SBC this summer, please go and vote your conscience and pray for the direction of the Southern Baptist Convention because this is a vital issue that's going to determine whether we continue down a progressive, liberal, egalitarian trajectory or we continue to remain conservative in our stances on these key doctrinal issues that are very clear. 
Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I appreciate it. Until next time, let's all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.